Looking for a new show to dive into? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like the full season of FX's epic limited series Shogun, FX's new international spy thriller The Veil, starring Emmy and Golden Globe winner Elizabeth Moss. And don't miss the all-new crime series Under the Bridge, inspired by shocking true events and starring Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone. It's all new, and it's streaming now on Hulu. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man who still does not think fondly of his time at WNBC. Here is the captain. I might be able to forgive. I'll never forget old pig vomit. It's good to be seen and good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. This week we are featuring heavy boots of lead from the great beer smiths at Single Cut. This is a big beer, super complex. Heavy boots of lead is a dark, smooth imperial stout with coffee and chocolate. ABV 11%, garage grade 4 out of 5 bottle caps. And here's some of our good friends that helped us out with this week's beer run. First up, cheers to Nicholas in Weaverville, North Carolina. And a big shout out to Curtis in Aceworth, Georgia. Next up, Captain, we have a big Ron Swanson please and thank you that goes out to Anna in Alton, New Hampshire. And a sneeze and spank you goes out to Damaris in Buckley, Washington. And cheers to all the beautiful people in Parts Unknown, because last but certainly not least, we have a cheers to Margie Dean in Parts Unknown. Everyone we just mentioned, they went to our website, which is truecrimegarage.com, and they clicked on the donate button, and for that, we thank you. Yeah, the beautiful people. The beautiful people. B-W-E-R-R-U-N, Beer Run. Thanks for selling out our show in Nashville. We can't wait to hang out with you and get our drink on. Make sure to be in the know. You go to our website, truecrimegarage.com, and sign up on our mailing list so you're in the know about events and about special promo code deals to the garage store. And that is enough of the business, Colonel. All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. (laughs) 
This week's true crime story is a unique and intriguing case that falls into two homicide case study categories in the FBI's crime classification manual. These homicides that we are going to talk about are both a revenge killing and a non-specific motive killing. Per the crime classification manual, a revenge killing involves the murder of another person and retaliation for a perceived wrong, real or imagined, committed against the offender or a significant other. Victimology. When revenge is the motive for a homicide, the victim may or may not personally know the offender. But something in the victim's life is related directly to the actions of the offender. There is a significant event or interaction that links the offender to the victim. The revenge motive generated by this event may be unknown to the victim or to the victim's family or friends. Multiple victims may be involved, depending on the nature of the event that triggered the act of revenge. A nonspecific motive killing pertains to a homicide that appears irrational and is committed for a reason known only to the offender. It subsequently may be defined and categorized after more extensive investigation into the offender's background. The victims of a nonspecific homicide are random, with no direct relationship between victim and offender. Victims can be male, female, adults, or children, and demonstrate a disparity of characteristics and lifestyle. The crime scene is usually a public place and poses a high risk to the offender. There is nothing missing from it, and it is disorganized, with no effort having been made to conceal the victim. A firearm is the weapon of choice for this type of offender. This crime often becomes a massacre because it is the offender's goal to kill as many people as possible. Because nothing is removed from the scene, an abundance of evidence is usually available. This includes shell casings, prints, discarded weapons, and so on. High-powered, high-caliber, and or high-capacity firearm use will be evident and enables the offender to accomplish his goal of mass killing. Wounds will be concentrated on vital areas, head, neck, and chest. This crime is almost exclusively committed during daylight in public places because the offender wants the highest death toll possible. Witnesses often are available to identify the offender as he is unconcerned with being identified. The offender has no escape plan and possibly intends to commit suicide or be shot by police. Through a broad neighborhood investigation, pre-offense characteristics become evident. The offender usually has a disheveled appearance, is withdrawn, demonstrates an isolated effect, and possibly exhibits erratic behavior. As you have gathered by the descriptions of these types of homicides, motive is not always clear. In fact, a real true motive may only make sense to the killer, and such is the case in this week's true crime tale. A man that one day set out on his own personal seek-and-destroy mission they called him the Wholesale Slayer. Howard Barton Unruh 
shot 13 people in less than 12 minutes on his block in East Camden, New Jersey. The quiet oddball who meticulously plotted his revenge on his neighbors, who shunned him, became one of America's first mass killers at the age of 28. His rampage has since been named the Walk of Death. This is True Crime Garage. Patrick Sauer wrote an incredibly great piece about this week's true crime story. I recommend that everybody check it out. He wrote this for the Smithsonian Magazine and titled it The Story of the First Mass Murder in U.S. History. Howard Unruh's Walk of Death foretold an era in which such tragedies would become all too common. Now, I'm going to pull a few things from this article here first to set things up. Then, Captain, I want to go through some of the actual news articles from that day so we can take a look at this case almost as it played out. Now, from Patrick Sauer, on the morning of Tuesday, September 6, Howard Unruh would embark on his walk of death, murdering 13 people and wounding three others in a 20-minute rampage. A somewhat forgotten man outside of criminology circles and local old-timers, Unruh was an early chapter in the tragically all-too-familiar American story of an angry man with a gun inflicting carnage. There have been killers since Cain murdered Abel, and Unruh certainly wasn't the first American to take the lives of multiple victims. The FBI defines a mass murder as four or more victims in a single incident, usually in one spot. Serial killers and spree killers fall into their own category. And there's also a new crowdsourced mass shooting tracking system that counts the number of people shot as opposed to those that are killed, but it is not an official set of data. What is known is that the United States, with 5% of the world's population, was home to nearly one-third of the world's mass shooters from 1966 to 2012. Before that, mass gun murders, like Unruh, were too rare to be considered a threat. Unruh is generally regarded as the first of the lone wolf type of modern mass murderers, the template for the school and workplace shooters who have dominated the coverage of more than 1,000 victims since 2013. Unruh was a distinctive personality type, one that has also come to define those who have followed in his bloody footsteps. Unruh really matches the mass murder profile. He had a rigid temperament, an inability to accept frustration or people not treating him as well as he wanted, and feeling isolation. All things people accept and move on from, says Catherine Ramslin. She's a professor of forensic psychology and the director of the Master of Arts in Criminal Justice at DeSales University. We've talked about her several times, as she is the author of some 60 nonfiction books, including Inside the Mind of Mass Murderers, Why They Kill. She goes on to say, about Unruh, that he had a free-floating anger, held grudges, 
own weapons he knew how to use and decided somebody was going to pay. It's a typical recipe for internal combustion. End quote. Howard Barton Unruh was born in Camden, New Jersey in 1921. His father was Samuel Shipley Unruh and his mother, Frida Vollmer. His parents didn't stick together, which was not very common back then. And Howard and his brother James were raised by their mother when the Unruhs separated. For the most part, it seems that his childhood was normal, or is at least reportedly to be somewhat normal. Howard was listed as quiet and shy in at least one of his yearbooks. Howard got average grades, didn't quite fit in as much as one would like, but Howard was a regular churchgoer. In fact, he read the Bible often and was very fond of music. There'd definitely be a part of his childhood that would have been rough because he would have been in New Jersey during the Great Depression, so that probably was a difficult time for him because it was difficult time for most families. But in 1942, he's going to enlist and serve in World War II. Yeah, he enlists in the U.S. Army, serves in World War II, and he saw quite a bit of action as well. And he is said to have been a highly skilled marksman. And he also worked as a tank driver, taking part in the Battle of the Bulge and fighting in Belgium, Austria, Germany, and France. My nickname in high school was the Battle of the Bulge. Now, one thing that he did that separated him from most soldiers is that he kept meticulous notes about every German that he killed during his time in war, documenting the time and place of where he did it and writing descriptions of the bodies if he happened to see them. After being honorably discharged in 1945, he returned home and moved in with his mother at this time bringing in a collection of firearms, medals, and photos of German artillery with him. So this is kind of like his collection and scrapbook, if you will, of his time during the war. I'll post pictures of Howard on our Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook pages. You'll see his demeanor is very... It's almost like he has no emotion whatsoever. Yeah, he's got this very blank look to his face, especially right after he is, well, especially right after the events that we're about to get into. Now, keep in mind, the war is over in 1945. And when the war is over, he returns home. And again, he's seen a lot of action. He was in multiple countries. We know that he kept diaries about his kills during wartime. And he enlisted in 1942. So he was overseas defending this great country for several years before he returns to Camden, New Jersey. Now, upon returning, well, life is very different for him during this time. You know, so he finishes school, goes into the army, goes off to war. And you got to keep in mind, things must have been rather regimented for this guy. Right. During his school years and then his time in the army and then, of course, off at war. Now he's at home and he's kind of doing a whole lot of nothing. He's got some pretty low-level jobs that he doesn't seem to care a whole lot about. He's living with his mother because he needs her to financially support him. She's got a full-time job. He doesn't do a whole lot once he's back. He makes an attempt at having some type of career when he goes off to the temple school for 
pharmaceuticals or it, oh i have it here in my notes here captain he went for three months and studied pharmacy at temple university in philadelphia well he doesn't that doesn't work out for him and so he drops out and now he's hanging out at mom's home for all of these years well he cites the reason for that being poor physical condition it's it's also interesting too that his enlistment picture he is smiling and full of energy it, it makes you really wonder how much effect the war had on this individual right it also makes you wonder about his general makeup his mental makeup in psychology of this individual as well he almost looks to be happier at the time of war rather than when he's back here living the civilian life now his walk of death will take place on tuesday september 6 1949 so he is home for roughly three to four years before his actions of this dreaded day in camden new jersey I'm guessing, one, he has PTSD or some level of that. Now, you heard in our description that we gave of the typical things that one would expect to find from the FBI when we're talking about this type of crime. And one thing that was mentioned there during the trailer is that the offender likely does not care about being identified. He doesn't do anything to conceal his identity and often will leave eyewitnesses so is the case in howard unruh's walk of death you'll hear it straight from the articles that they wrote in the newspaper about that event this is from the evening courier which was a local newspaper local to the area and the headline is massacre of 12 is described by eyewitnesses many see slayings on street in shops of East Camden. And it goes on to say, when Howard Unruh ran amok, shooting at everyone in sight near 32nd Street and River Avenue, killing 12 but missing others, there were many witnesses to the massacre. Following are a number of eyewitness accounts. One of the first eyewitness accounts of the shooting came from William McNeely, age 48, He's a repairman for the public service. I love the general description and general job titles that they gave back in the 40s. He says, quote, I first saw the man go up to a child on the northeast corner of 32nd Street and River Avenue and fire point blank at the child's head, killing him. He goes on to say when Cohen, the druggist, and the insurance man came out of the drugstore to see what was happening, the slayer fired at the insurance man and killed him. Cohen tried to get out of the way by running up 32nd Street, but the killer's aim was good, and he killed him while he was running. Then he went into the drugstore and went upstairs and killed two women. I think they were Cohen's wife and his mother. The witness goes on to say that he, the shooter, came out of the place a few minutes later and saw a man parked in a car on the south side of River Avenue, just east of 32nd Street. He fired into the car and killed him. And goes on to say that he then saw a group of men standing on the north side of the street. He pointed the pistol at them and began firing rapidly. They escaped by dodging into 
a nearby saloon. But what a vicious scene this would have been. This points out what we had already concluded with the information from the FBI, that there would be several eyewitnesses to this massacre. This man, Howard Unruh, is basically walking down the street, going business to business and going into these businesses and shooting at different individuals inside of these businesses. And keep in mind, he lives right there. This is all happening in his neighborhood, right on his little corner of the world. But if I'm following you correctly, this all starts at the pharmacy. That's exactly right, Captain. Unruh's massacre started at the River Road Pharmacy. This is owned and operated by Maurice Cohen, and it takes place about 9.20 a.m. in the morning. So he has breakfast at home, and he goes out on the street, gun in hand. He's got 33 bullets in his pockets, and he's ready to track down some individuals, and he's ready to murder them in their place of work or on the streets there in East Camden. Doesn't seem like a big shocker that he starts at the pharmacy because he went to school to try to be a pharmacist and ended up dropping out. This guy holds grudges. He failed at something, so maybe this is his way at getting back at that thing he failed at. I think that you're right. I think that there's a whole lot of there's a whole lot of things that are, are leading up to this event. I think that likely the pharmacy of being the first place that he goes to commit this atrocity is that I think it's really just happenstance because really what it appears to me is that his actual grudge is with the pharmacist himself with this Maurice Cohen and the Cohen family, because he is actually neighbors with the Cohens and they had an ongoing beef, if you will, over several different things. They didn't get along. He, he, did not get along with the entire Cohen family. As you will hear in our interview with the author of Murder in the Neighborhood, you can hear that there's a lot of things that are building up to this. And when he comes home the night before, there was a gate that was missing. He had put in a gate to his backyard. He and the Cohens shared a backyard. For whatever reason, someone took that gate. And the gate was a bit of an argument between Howard, his mother, and the Coens. And it's believed that once he saw that that gate was gone, that he decided that he was going to get this, he was going to get revenge against the Coens and several other people in the neighborhood. And he was going to do it first thing that morning. So after he kills Cohen, his wife, and Cohen's mother, Unruh walked out of the store. This is when he encounters the insurance agent. The insurance agent was walking in that same general area. So Unruh shoots him through the head, killing him instantly. Then Howard Unruh walked across the sidewalk to the curb where Alvin Day was in his vehicle. His vehicle had stopped at the traffic light. And so Howard fires through the windshield and killed him with a bullet to the head. So when he shoots Day, Day is going to try to... I guess, get out of his vehicle, run for cover, but he ends up collapsing over his steering wheel. Yeah, some attempt to get out of the vehicle was made by Day before he dies. Now, these gunshots attracted a group of men that were in a bar across from the drugstore. And so they run out into the street. 
They're trying to see what's going on. Several shots are fired from our killer to at these men that come running out of the bar. And they're lucky enough that they start to, they have enough time to start to flee from Howard Unruh. Unruh then walked by the barbershop of Clark Hoover, where Hoover was cutting the hair of a boy, a six-year-old boy. And as the paper says, with the deadly aim he had perfected in a target range later found in his basement of his home, Howard Unruh sent a bullet crashing into Hoover's brain and then killed the Smith boy with another single shot as he sat on the hobby horse seat Hoover used for his child patrons. From the barber shop, Howard Unruh went into the adjoining shoe repair shop. Inside there, he kills the shoe repair shop owner who was trying to shield himself from gunfire by cowering behind the counter. From the shoe repair shop, Howard Unruh walked to the front of a house at River Avenue where another single shot fired through the front window killed Thomas Hamilton, age two. Well, and this is how you can see how evil he is because he doesn't care who he's killing Man, child, woman, doesn't matter. Continuing up the street to 3214 River Avenue, this is a dry cleaning shop. He there shot and killed Helga Zagrino. She is the attendant in charge. Well, obviously Howard has some issues, but the pharmacy kind of makes some sense to me. Attacking the neighbors because he has a grudge against them kind of makes sense, but did he have a list of people he was looking for, or was this just believed to be random and whoever was there got in the way and and he was going to shoot anybody in his path. And so he has people that he's seeking revenge against. He has a grudge against several people, as you have stated, but it's also a situation where we have both revenge killings and non-specific motive homicides here. Because some of these individuals just happen to be in the area at the time. It's kind of like when you have a school shooter or a workplace shooter. With the workplace and school shooter, often they will know some of their victims, but but they will also not know some of the victims. Some of the other victims may just happen to be at the location where they are going to go and kill people. And then... What we have here is, as stated by the FBI with these type of offenders, they are looking to kill as many people as possible. So they're not always sitting there making the decision right then and there, oh, do I kill this person or that person? Because, yes, I have a grudge against person A, but not against person B. Often they will just kill both. This part of the massacre will really kind of answer your question here, Captain, because what we end up having is... With the dry cleaners, when he goes to the the shop, the dry cleaner shop, we later will learn that on his hit list, if you will, or his list is not just that simple to call it a hit list. We, We can get into that a little bit later. But he goes to the dry cleaners with the intention of finding Thomas Zagrino. He's the the tailor and one of the owners. He and Hilga own the shop together. Now, we know later that Thomas Zagrino was on his hit list, if you will, but Hilga was not. 
And so when he goes to the dry cleaner shop, Thomas is not there, but Hilga is. And so he kills Hilga anyway before going on to his next target or the next location. The next spot he's going to go to is the local grocery store. Yes, and whoever owns that gets a little lucky here, Captain, because they find Howard Unruh finds the front door locked. So he simply fires through the front door, and then he approaches a car that is waiting at an intersection and shoots the occupants of that vehicle. So if you can kind of picture this in your mind here, he leaves his house, gun in hand, and he's going through the neighborhood. He obviously has certain targets going into these different businesses and seeking out individuals that he wants to shoot and kill. But also think of all the vehicles that we have mentioned during his walk of death, where they're simply pulling up to a stoplight at an intersection that he happens to be standing by and he's firing into their vehicles. Do you know if the grocery store was closed just by happenstance or was it locked because they heard the gun fire earlier? I was just looking at my notes for that information, and I don't have that here, Captain, but my belief is that they locked the doors because they heard the gunfire. And remember, we had already mentioned that several of the businesses, people came outside to see what was going on, why they are hearing these these gunshots. Later, some people would say that they thought that some of the noises were simply a car backfiring, where I think with the grocery shop, we have the situation where they came outside, they saw the panic in the streets and decided that the best choice that they had in this situation was to go back inside and lock the front door. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. 
Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited-time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's No Prep, No Mess Meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, we are back. Cheers, mates. Cheers. Now, we're going through this massacre that took place back in 1949. Again, this is before 
these types of shootings are unfortunately have become commonplace in today's society. This was really a rare occurrence back then. What we have is this man who, who, who seemingly has completely lost it, gone off the rails. Maybe the gate being stolen was the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. He's out on the streets. He's gunning down anybody that he, he chooses to at a, at a second's notice. He eventually hears police sirens in the background. Now, I've seen it reported, Captain, that the response time in this situation was as short as 18 minutes and maybe as long as 20 minutes. It's a little unclear. Keep in mind, we're going back a long time ago in history to try to piece these events together. But part of that lengthy response time is for several different reasons. One, it's 1949. Not everybody's walking around with a cell phone. And as we pointed out just before we went to the break, even though some people were rushing outside to see what was going on, it wasn't clear to everybody what, in fact, was absolutely happening, right? We've already pointed out how rare this occurrence would be, so rare, in fact, that he is often referred to as the first mass murderer or the first mass murder event in U.S. history. Right, so there's not a lot of protocol, but just to reiterate something that you were talking about earlier, was he had a firing range or a target practice in his basement, mm-hmm. and so a lot of people make a big deal about well he was prepared for this. It's like, but he was also in the army for three years, fighting wars. He was he was prepared for this well before he was training in his in his basement. And not only that, the scary thing about his wartime is, look, a lot of people, when they come back from war, they don't want to talk about the things that they were forced to do while over there. They try not to reflect on that time period. They want to try to forget it. Where with Howard, it's much more difficult, his time at war, because he seemed to possibly even have enjoyed the act of killing While he was at war, he kept meticulous notes about it in his diary or journal. And when he returned, and I know it's not uncommon for people, especially in World War II, to have returned with this collection of things that they took off of Nazi soldiers. But he comes back with this collection of things that he took off of Nazi soldiers, and he's hanging them on his walls. And yes, I wonder if it's a little bit of folklore about the target practice in his mother's basement. Right. But there seems to be some truth to it because part of the arguments that the Coens had with Howard was that he was too loud. You know, he's creating all this noise. He's firing guns in his basement. He's playing his music incredibly loud. But his side of the argument was, well, the Coens are incredibly loud and I've asked them to be quiet several times. And so I'm only loud because they're loud. Keep in mind, they're not just neighbors. They're neighbors that are separated by a wall, separated by a wall. They share that backyard, that yard space where Howard and his mother have the second gate put in because originally there was only one gate and the families were feuding over the gate. Who was using it? People were leaving it open uh, overnight and things of that nature. So the Unruhs put in their own gate. So you can do what you want with your gate, 
Cohen's. We'll do what we want with ours. After this t- time frame of mayhem, he is going to head back to his apartment. Yeah, he flees back to his apartment because he can hear the sirens, the police sirens off in the distance. So he knows that they're converging in on this area, this really what is simply two corners of East Camden. And this is, keep in mind how chaotic this all is. This is a residential slash business area of town. There's businesses and there's plenty of housing and apartments and such. So this is kind of a congested area. This will be a well-trafficked area, both on in vehicles and foot traffic. So there's a lot of people, potentially a lot of victims right here, just, just footsteps outside of Howard Unruh's front door. All in all, Unruh kills 13 people and injures three. And this all before fleeing back to his apartment. Now, once he's back at his apartment, he's fairly quickly surrounded by police. We mentioned the slow response time, but even though it's a slow response time, the response itself is pretty powerful and they're heavily armed. There were up to 50 officers that surrounded his apartment. Howard Unruh didn't just barricade himself inside of his home. He shoots it out with police. The issue becomes when he's on foot, he can only carry so many weapons and so much ammo. But when he gets back to his house, he has a, he has a lot more weapons and a lot more ammo. This is true. And I'm going to post some pictures of these events on Twitter because there's one picture that is, I hate to say this because we're talking about so much death and destruction and tragedy here. But there is a picture during this gunfight with police that kind of cracks me up. It almost in a way reminds me of the movie The Christmas Story. Ralphie is dreaming about getting his BB gun and he has to fight off these would-be burglars and, and potential bad guys that are in his backyard, right? And he's shooting at them and they're they're all over the place. They're coming over the fence. They're up on top of the roof. And they're just coming from all angles and he's kind of taking them out. It's more, it's, it's that, but it's a reverse. When you look at the shootout that, that Howard has with police, there are police officers that are, some of them are holding automatic guns. Some of them are holding rifles. Some of them are holding handguns. They got the place well surrounded. There's even officers that are on the rooftop of Howard's apartment so that they could fire into the second floor window. So they have this guy surrounded. He's got nowhere to go. And one thing that's strange, and we've seen this time and time again throughout our dark history of these mass killers, that oftentimes when surrounded or when they have achieved their goal or got the revenge that they were seeking, a lot of times they will end up killing themselves or committing suicide by having the police shoot them dead. In Howard's situation, he's returning gunfire with the police. And eventually, they start tossing in tear gas. And he decides at some point, you know what? I'm done. I'm done fighting. The tear gas is enough. You got me surrounded. And he comes out and they apprehend him right then and there. 
and there's that picture that the captain was referring to earlier uh, about some of the stuff that we will be posting of him standing there arrested and he's wearing a suit and bow tie and he's staring with this blank look at the newspaper. And when he's staring at the camera person who took that picture, it doesn't look to me to be the look of, oh my God, I'm in shock of what I just did. I can't believe my own actions or I'm scared to death. Any of that. He almost looks like he's standing there with this blank look, this stare that says, yeah, I did this. Yeah, I did this. And it might've been a long time coming. Now, the thing that we've unfortunately become all too used to in the United States is the frequency of these public shooters. And whenever this happens, especially when there is a high kill rate, we want to know who is to blame, not just the shooter, but what else is to blame in our society? How could we allow this person to have been created and then go out on this rampage? And I don't know that there's ever going to be a clear answer, in my opinion. I think part of that is reflected in what we went through in the trailer from the FBI's crime classification manual that says in some of these types of cases and with some of these offenders, we don't really know the motive. They may not fully know the motive for some of their killings themselves. Now, it looks to me like here in this situation, Captain, that Howard Unruh understood why he killed some of these people, but maybe why he didn't kill others. Some he was seeking revenge on, others just happened to be there in the wrong place at the wrong time. In fact, it reminds me of a quote from the old TV show Criminal Minds from the fictitious detective on there, Jason Gideon, who's I think the best of the the fake detectives on Criminal Minds. But one of his quotes on that show was when talking about an offender like this or somebody that kills multiple people, he says, think of him as a living murder weapon. His genetics load the gun, his psychology aims it, and the environment pulls the trigger. Now, we do have some quotes from Howard Unruh himself. And you mentioned he only had one gun. He only had so much ammunition when he went through the streets that day on his walk of death. But Howard Unruh said, I would have killed a thousand if I had enough bullets. And then he goes on to give us a little bit of insight as to a possible motive for his rampage that morning. He says, quote, when I came home last night and found my gate had been taken, I decided to shoot all of them so I would get the right one. Jersey correspondent Norda Mushanik revisits the walk of death and killer Howard Unruh. Before there was Columbine or Newtown, there was Camden. On the morning of September 6, 1949, 28-year-old Howard Unruh, dressed in a suit and bow tie, stalked the 2300 block of River Road in the city's Kramer Hill section, shooting and killing 13 people and injuring three. Among the victims, a six-year-old boy getting a haircut on this hobby horse at the barber shop. It became known as the Walk of Death. That was America apple pie right after we won the Second World War. 
and it was never expected. My mom, get away, get Come on, let's go, let's go. George Jenkins was six when his mother shoot him into the house after hearing gunshots. Unruh, a former Army sharpshooter who had a target range in his basement, kept meticulous records about neighbors he had run-ins with. The top entry reads, you dirty bum, I wish you were dead. Fifteen years ago, I spoke with one of the survivors of Unruh's rampage. The late Charles Cohen's parents and grandmother were murdered that day. Gunfire happened, and when I walked out, my grandmother was holding a phone in bed, dead, with blood coming out of her nose and face. He hid in the closet, feeling totally helpless, and he had to come out and see that horrible scene. The reaction was pretty strong, being as it was one of the first occasions of a, a mass murder of that, site, of that type. 80-year-old Len Irwin is a volunteer at the Camden County Historical Society where they keep memorabilia from the notorious crime. Howard Unruh confessed and was declared criminally insane. He died in 1988 after being confined to a mental hospital for 60 years. But the troubled young man from East Camden will forever be remembered as the country's first mass murderer in modern times. I'm Nora Mushanik, Channel 6 Action News. Yeah, so much more to get to. Join us back here in the garage. And if you're looking for more True Crime Garage, check out our bonus show called Off the Record. It's on Stitcher Premium. You get every show that's on Stitcher Premium just for $5 a month. And you can go to truecrimegarage.com and sign up for that bonus show. That's if you need more True Crime Garage in your earballs. Also, why don't you come join me in Cleveland, a night with the captain. Yes, the colonel couldn't make it, but it will be a night with the captain, and we will be at Brewdog. The date is July 14th. It's a Thursday. Tickets are available at CaptainFatHands.com. Please come out, and let's talk some crime. Delphi, let's talk some JonBenet Ramsey. Let's talk anything True Crime Garage. I look forward to meeting and drinking with all of you. No better place to do it than Cleveland, Ohio, and no better place than BrewDog. Join us back here in the garage as we take a deeper dive into this mass murder. Until tomorrow, be good, be kind, and don't litter. Capella University is rethinking higher education. With their game-changing FlexPath format, you can earn your degree on your schedule, so you can fit education seamlessly into your life. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.